Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast covering all things spatial. I'm Jamie Nobbs, the marketing coordinator at NGIS, and I'm joined today by your usual podcast host, Sarah Butler, the marketing manager at NGIS, and who seems to be on the podcast quite a lot this season, Sam Atkinson, the general manager of EO Data Science. So welcome back to you both. It's great to have you both on here. On this week's episode of Location Matters, we are talking about spatial finance and how financial institutions are beginning to use spatial data more often to help make decisions and monitor their assets and investment portfolios. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you all. Thank you both for joining. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm getting better at hosting now. I it's feel been like a few episodes. I feel like Sam's going to become a permanent co-host for Location Matters because he so is basically. Like I feel like you're carrying season two at the moment. He's been like my um, wingman. <laughs> I told him that this morning. I walked in. and I was like, "We're about to make you a co-host." I think at the rate we're going, I said, "It's what happens when you know a lot of stuff." I don't know, we feel like we need to give you a break, Sam. <laughs> There's plenty of other people to talk to. Uh, I sure. feel like you're enjoying it, though. You're more accessible. I'm getting the hang of this, I think. Yeah, you are. <laughs> All right, let's jump into it. Can you guys please explain the concept of spatial finance? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this today because, for me, I feel like it's two of my career worlds colliding. When I came across the concept of spatial finance the first time, I was on LinkedIn And like all of my colleagues that I worked with in the UK, because in the UK I worked at a think tank for financial institutions, so um, public and private sector. It's called the Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum, otherwise known as OMFIF. Um, And I worked with really amazing people there, economists. We had guys that would curate this this amazing meetings content. And uh, I saw them posting about spatial finance. I think it was one of my old colleagues, Deny, and I was like, spatial finance? is this happening? Is this two of my like, yeah, worlds colliding here? Because now I'm doing obviously geospatial here in Perth. And so I had a little read into it and I was reading it and I was like, that's exactly what's happening here. Basically, the concept of spatial finance is combining geospatial data and analysis into financial theory and practice. Um, That's the standard definition of it. But really, it's all about making better decisions on investments, particularly before investing and during an investment period. Like I mentioned before, you've got public and private sector businesses or organisations that will invest in, you know, huge investment capabilities, investing in an array of different asset classes. So there are four main asset classes for investors, um, for those who don't know. So there's cash, equities, fixed interest and property. I think where we'll really see spatial finance show its value is in the property side of the equation. These investors, they've got huge amounts of money and they want to use it wisely, you know, and ensure that They've got some security within those investments. Earth observations, I think, can help them understand more about the extent of the land or the property that they're dealing with or investing in and understand, you know, at any point, a status update of, of what's going on with those places. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of different benefits. When you talk about investors, who are the sorts of people you're talking about? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned before, I would divide them into public and private. Public sector investors uh, have, I, I find, to have the, the largest portfolios and the most amount of money to invest. And so when we use a reference to public investors, or what I used to call in London with my previous employers, global public investors, it is sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, or public pension funds, and central banks. 
Um, And then in the private side, you've got hedge funds and asset managers, for example. All right. So what are some of the benefits of using spatial technology in these financial practices? So for people like hedge funds and sovereign wealth funds that you've mentioned? Well, all of these large organisations, they have what we call a, a criteria or policies around ESG, which is environmental, social and governance criteria. That's a group of standards used by investors to be socially conscious and to screen their investments. You know, responsible and sustainable investment is something that's really important to these organisations. I really saw the emergence of that when I was in the UK. So, you know, looking back five, you know, four or five years ago, it really started to be something that these organisations started taking seriously. Back then, the concept of spatial finance was never something that they were talking about. I know that. Um, But I think there's been a dawning of realisation in these organisations that people care about what these organisations are investing in and they care, you know. We saw the advent of people hiring responsible investment managers, people to manage these portfolios to make sure that they were aligning with these ESG targets that they had set for themselves. So the benefits I would say is just helping for for spatial finance that is, is helping these organisations understand environmental social governance of their of their assets responsible and sustainable investment options and understanding the lay of the land. Something and I, Sam, were were talking about yesterday is like just understanding these vast landscapes and understanding impacts that those places can have um, and if it does align with that sustainability criteria. But there's also a side of this which I find really interesting, which is risk mitigation and risk management. There's a lot of techniques within Earth Observations that can help these investors understand the security of their assets from a risk perspective. And they're like looking at many different environmental factors that could be impacting those assets. And when you are investing millions of dollars in something, you want to know as soon as you can if there's anything at risk within those assets. Something I'll mention is that um, OMFIF have released their Global Public Investor Report this year, which is something that they do annually. And I noticed on their website that they've said that over 90% of global public investors have specific ESG investment policies in place or in the process of developing them. That's a report that they did with Bank of New York Mellon and and themselves as a chapter of the global public investor. So this is something that's still really at the forefront of investors' minds. So I think spatial finance is going to be a really key tool for them to have in their toolkit going forward and, and meeting these criteria. We've started to touch on it, but what are some of the ways that you've seen spatial finance applied, so in particular in the Australian context? So there's there's actually a lot of examples, um, the more I thought about this yesterday. But one of the things we find with a lot of spatial intelligence is it loses its value as a um, competitive advantage for people that know about it, the more people that know about it. So a lot of work gets done in this space, but it's pretty secretive. Um, no one's writing papers on the mechanism they're using to you know, gain an advantage in the market. So you don't hear about a lot, but some of the ones I am aware of um, is, for example, around um, you know investment decisions, but particularly large purchases and acquisitions. So you'll see this in the mining industry in Australia during that, um, I suppose, courting period between two companies as they're looking to exchange a, a large asset. One will be trying to work out the liabilities attached to it. So in particular, environmental liabilities, which can be substantial um, with a mining operation and I've heard, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I have heard that that was kind of one of the key reasons that BHP didn't manage to sell the Nickel West assets five or six years ago. Um, it was the, the size of the environmental liability attached to those essentially outweighed the, the sale value for a lot of the people looking to invest in it. 
Another thing I've heard of as well is using satellite data to monitor the mineral exploration activities of competitors. So understanding where they're drilling, how much effort are they putting into that, and then other companies using kind of that information to guide uh, where they might do drilling on kind of adjacent tenements or look to purchase tenements. Another one that's that's really obvious as well is um, around commodity trading and competitor analysis there, and also just to understand where or to attempt to make predictions on where the market might go. So, for example, you know, in the iron ore industry here, um, you'll see Carrathra and Port Hedland have, have very regular high-resolution satellite image captures because people want to understand how much is going through the ports, how much is stockpiled at the ports, and likewise in the destination countries, you know, in particular China, um, again, monitoring stockpiles at ports to try and understand where the market's uh, going from a supply and demand point of view to attempt to use that to make decisions on, um, you know, what the spot price might do in future. Uh, and we certainly see a very similar thing in um, agriculture. There's a number of companies, of course, and, and traders involved in trying to understand which way the price is going to go. Be able to make predictions on that gives them an advantage over others and allows them to make money from trading. So you'll see, um, you know, there's a number of services around predicting, um, you know, the total areas of certain crops grown globally, and attempting to predict yield um, in advance of what the market might understand yield to be. And so by being able to understand where there might be a shortage or an oversupply that can guide trading decisions. The other one that we see a lot is earth observations, but also spatial data in general to inform um, lending decisions in the rural space. So for example, you know, a bank looking to um, lend to somebody to purchase a farm or a rural property, that bank wants to understand um, you know, how profitable that business might be, um, if there's any particular risks attached to that, what assets are already there. Uh, and that helps them to make valuation decisions and, and guide their both how they shape a lending decision. You see similar ones with um, around uh, property valuations and you know rural sales, even in the insurance market. For them to provide like an insurance quotation on a on a large rural property, they've got to understand what all the assets are, what the particular risks are. Is it prone to flooding? Is it prone to bushfire? And to be able to make decisions around that. And of course, there's cost and um, time associated with sending people out in the field to to have a look at that. So I can mention names here, I'm sure. Um, Digital Agricultural Services out of um, Melbourne are probably one of the leaders in that space, providing kind of rural intelligence solutions. Yeah, they're doing some really cool stuff. I was just going to say, I think it's pretty, it's really interesting having both Sam and I on this podcast coming at this from different views and different backgrounds, because like immediately with my experience in the UK and like working with these like very large investors and knowing how important um, ESG and um, responsible investment is to them. Sam has brought in in just one answer there, like an entirely different lens to it, and this a business perspective of actually being able to make smarter investment decisions. And I really love the point that you made about the like monitoring competitors. It was actually an application of Earth observations within spatial finance that I hadn't heard before. Like I could imagine how useful is that because like of course you want to see what your competitors are doing of course you want to know what your competitors are doing um so that was just even then just something I didn't even think of um massively beneficial to people doing business like you know we talk about competitor analysis all the time but being able to then use earth observations to do that and do it from your desktop is a pretty amazing reason to want to look into this technology and it makes sense too I mean if you look at the market sector which dominates the use of commercial satellite imagery, it's, it's defence. Globally, it's, it's more than 80% of all satellite imagery is for defence purposes. And why are they doing it? They're doing it to get intelligence about location. And it's the exact same kind of drivers for, for a lot of businesses to understand 
get insights about um, location and particularly location that they can't access and don't have data on. Yeah, I was reading in Sustainability and Satellites, New Frontiers in Sovereign Debt Investing, uh, the report by the Worldwide Fund for Nature and Investor Group. They said that the global footprint network estimates that we're using nature 1.7 times faster than our planet's ecosystem can regenerate. How a country manages natural resources will influence their economic growth. So those investment organisations are starting to look into the risks of their assets, as you've mentioned, that contribute to the global effort to safeguard our planet's future. How are you seeing businesses use satellite imagery to safeguard these natural resources? Well, that's a, that's a great question. If you um, There's a number of um, kind of global manufacturing businesses at the moment that have just truly kind of incredible global scale and, and really massive supply chains. Um, and for them to track well, what is happening at the source of that supply chain, you know, if you look at things like palm oil or rubber or, you know, wood paper products, for example, these companies are increasingly very conscious of um, their impact in the world. So you're seeing commitments from um, kind of global brands like you know Nestle and Unilever and Mars to um, remove deforestation from their supply chain. Yay! Um, about time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, and um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I do know that those companies are working exceptionally hard to try and do that. But when they actually try and map their supply chain, which is moving through kind of numerous businesses um, before it reaches you know their factories it's, it's an exceptionally challenging task but that is that is a really not ideal application for spatial science in general particularly um, satellite remote sensing to work out what is happening on the ground where my raw materials are coming from so uh, okay so basically I, I just want to investigate this a bit further because I find this really interesting so if you've got a like a massive um, multinational corporation like you mentioned Nestle Unilever, um, or Mars, basically what you're saying is that Earth observations um, is and satellite data is able to basically show them, you know, okay, our, we know our supplier gets their palm oil from this place, or these plantations, but they necessarily don't have any governance over what happens in those places. This is now giving them the ability, is that right, to to monitor what's happening in those places and make sure it's in line with their own, I guess, set of goals? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Where they previously would have had no visibility, right? Yes, no, they previously had no visibility at all um, outside of the kind of numerous NGOs and um, other agencies are actually working very hard to quantify what's happening, you know, particularly with respect to deforestation. Yes, so they can, so now they can see what is happening on ground, but at a very kind of a local scale, so they can take it down to a particular plantation or, or farm and say, we don't want to do business with that one anymore because of their um, involvement in deforestation. So we're going to use our commercial leverage to send a signal to the market that, we no longer want to do business with, with companies that are responsible for deforestation. So by mapping their supply chain, they can essentially send that signal down that, no, we can't purchase from that anymore. And if your um, mill or factory is purchasing from you know areas which have been deforested, then we won't do business with you. That's really how these companies, just due to their size and commercial weight, can have a real influence on ground without, of course, you know, having any kind of uh, governmental or, or legal ability to enforce their policies on ground. That's a massive game changer when you think about it, really. Like all the years that I've gone by where um, these businesses haven't really been able to have that kind of leverage, and especially in developing nations as well, where we do see like a larger level of deforestation, um, having that transparency and having those barriers removed, like I mean, you can't stop that type of behaviour and, and that kind of impact on the environment unless you can prove that it's happening. So that is a huge game changer for these organisations. You know, and like you said, they're trying to do the right thing, but 
until now they haven't been able to see or prove anything. So hopefully what we'll see is a change in attitude within some of the organisations in that supply chain at the beginning of the supply chain that, okay, hang on, uh, we might have gotten away with this for for several years, but now they're not going to stand for this and we're not going to make money unless we start doing things properly. So I think even at a developing nation level, this is a massive game changer and I I really hope that we see a change in attitude and behaviours. Yeah, I'll just uh, totally agree with you there, Sarah. The I mean, most of these companies for a long time and their investors and their and their boards have certainly never endorsed things like deforestation, um, but they haven't really had the, the mechanisms in place to be able to um, identify and, and kind of cut off the parts of their supply chain which are responsible and also to send that signal. It is an incredibly massive task for these companies to map their supply chain when you know, down at ground level, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of individual um, kind of locations feeding their supply chain. Um, yeah, we see that work being done um, on a pretty global scale at the moment, and it's location technology that's really driving uh, the ability to make these decisions. Have you seen any governments change like their policies around things like deforestation anywhere in the world based on earth observation technology? So you've mentioned palm oil plantations in Indonesia and I know that makes up a large amount of their like GDP. Have you seen governments actually change their behaviour and their policies based on these like large commercial players? Well I'm by far an expert in that field at all but um, I I am aware that the the vast majority of um, you know deforestation in Indonesia for example is is actually illegal. Um, It really comes back then to the capacity of the government to identify that and to prosecute that. I'm not sure what's happening in the Indonesian space there, but that's certainly a very similar issue in in Brazil, in the Amazon. Um, And through um, earth observation technology, those uh, government department, which I can't remember the name of, um, that responsible for that has actually been able to massively ramp up their detection and prosecutions of deforestation. And so that's, it's one thing to have a law saying um, you can't clear these areas, but if people, hundreds, thousands of people do it, um, and you don't have the capacity to prosecute enough of them to actually send a signal, it's going to happen regardless of the law. So that's where earth observation has really come into into the Brazilian system to assist them to manage that issue. We, um, we also had a um, really interesting article that we wrote, the EO Data Sciences website with Kiko Nomura. So she's not working for a government. Um, she is just uh, like a very, very talented um, young data scientist um, who is using Earth observations to basically, um, for the exact example that you gave, Jamie, which is um, using Earth observations to monitor palm oil plantations, the land use of these palm oil plantations and being able to understand um, where illegal deforestation is taking place within those um, land extents. So I think, you know, it, it really sends, I think if anything, it would send a message if you can get these types of articles and news stories out to the right people in government where they can see, okay, wow, um, if one person can create a tool using something like Google Earth Engine to make or to do this type of analysis and see um, how our land is being used and, you know, if there is any kind of illegal logging taking place in these areas or if she, you know, if Kiko can do that, then I'm sure that that would be sending a message to, to governments that, you know, they could be using Earth observations for sure to make better policy decisions um, and helping that to influence their policy making going forward on that topic, like Sam said. Underpinning the spatial finance work is technology that has rapidly evolved in the past few years. 
but Earth Observations isn't a new thing. What has contributed to this new wave of attention from the financial sector? Is it an accessibility piece? I think for sure. I I really do feel that way, that it is about it being more accessible than ever. Like I mentioned, when I was was working at OMFIF, um, this wasn't something that was a topic of discussion. Being able to use Earth Observations satellite imagery to make better, smarter investment decisions, um, have that align with your your ESG policies. I do think that I think that having accessibility and knowing that you can work with businesses that can help you deploy these technologies and have them fit for purpose for your organization and your needs is is something that I feel like is, you know, they're just waking up to at the moment personally. I could be wrong. But I think it has a lot to do with the advent of cloud technology personally and speed. Because I know Sam said on the podcast before that, yes, Earth Observations isn't a new thing. Well, you know, we've been doing this for for years, but basically what used to take us um, sometimes days to do, you know, can now be done in a matter of minutes. And I think from a financial institution's perspective, like they've got to make decisions quickly. They're not going to want to invest in something that's going to take days and days and days to sort out. So accessibility, speed, cloud technology, it's like the, you know, all of these things meeting together to you know form like it's like a perfect storm that they can now leverage yeah absolutely and also the i suppose the corporate knowledge within organizations as well that hey this is a thing these are some of the ways i can interpret data and insights to make better decisions and as it grows together um yeah we're seeing a, a real increase and, and of course the you know the much greater availability and lower cost of remote sensing data now is um and, and satellite imagery is uh, one of the key drivers as well you know it just puts a the price point is lowering constantly. More, more competitive as well. Yeah, yeah, more competitive and you can solve problems which have perhaps a lower value to a business because the cost of solving that problem is lower. Is that with the likes of Planet coming into the, the game? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Resolution. That, that was a key part of that, yeah. yeah. Resolution's a key thing as well. It's like, well, how far down to the Earth's surface do you want to see in, in high resolution, like, depending on who you work with, um, you will get a different quality of Im- like imagery. Um, and, you know, if you're looking at it like a very vast landscape, you might not need something that's super high resolution. Is that right? Yeah, you, yeah. you wouldn't. You, so you wouldn't want to pay for that. But if you do want to get that close, like 50 centimetres away from the Earth's surface, then, yeah, you'd go to someone like Planet, somebody that has that high cadence um, imagery. They've got, you know, so many satellites going around the Earth and they're able to provide that data very quickly. But, yeah, it just depends on your use case, you know, if you if you need to zoom in on those areas I think crops is a good example. We've talked about cropping in agriculture before. Then, yes, you would go to a provider that can give you that, but you don't always necessarily need to. It just depends on what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, once you start talking about resolution, you really got to understand the size of the features you're trying to identify. You know, if, if, you, if you're trying to identify vehicles or count vehicles or do something like that, then you're going to need 50 centimetre data. But if you're assessing crops, then, um, you know, something like Sentinel, even Landsat, which has been used for a very long time, um, is, is very fit for purpose. So you've mentioned satellite imagery. Have you seen, is drones another form of imagery or are there too many regulations around that? Yeah, probably the key thing for, with drones is um, in most jurisdictions there's a requirement for the person flying the drone to be able to um, maintain what's called visual line of sight so that they can see with the naked eye that drone at all times. So that really limits the scale of where they go. Drones, of course, are used a lot in in remote sensing, but for the purposes of having a look over the fence at your neighbour's property, etc., or 
being able to... It's not creepy at all. <laughs> totally creepy. Um, or to be able to see what someone's, um, you know, factory or port or uh, mining operation is doing, then drones aren't really viable. Well, there's a regu- that's, you know, so heavily regulated. I mean, there's also flying space as well. Like, um, you can't fly that drone if you're within an area that, uh, you know, has flight path, for example. Yeah, there's airspace restrictions. Yeah, the airspace yeah. restrictions. So, like, I think there's a lot of red tape Basically, I think the beauty of using satellite imagery is that you don't have to worry about a lot of that. Although there is obviously cloud cover is an issue sometimes. That's right. I mean, that's a great advantage of um, drones and aerial survey, um, you know, manned aerial surveys is that you're under the clouds. Satellites are looking at the tops of them, which can be hugely challenging. How do people get around that, though, with the cloud um, cloud cover and satellite imagery? Is there a Basically, way of getting around it? Not really. You, well... There is some ways with optical data. Um, yeah, you'll see the tops of clouds. Radar data penetrates through clouds, being an active sensor, and some um, kind of longer wavelengths as well also penetrate through clouds. That's why you can still map fires, for example, under clouds and through smoke. In general, if you are looking at areas which have a lot of cloud cover, so you know the tropics, then you want a sensor which is capturing more often. It just increases your chance of getting that cloud-free period. And yeah, and they're probably the Techniques and of course, when it comes to analysis, there's, there's a mountain of work you need to do around cloud masking and, and ways to stop the cloud from interfering with your analysis. What's radar data? What does that capture? So radar um, is an active sensor which basically uses a, a pulse of radio kind of wavelengths, microwave wavelengths, and um, being an active sensor and a, and a quite a long wavelength, they'll penetrate through things like um, water and to some extent, you know, they even penetrate into the ground, uh, reflect off the ground, return to the sensor and you can kind of decode information from that, from that radio noise. Do you have any examples of what you would use radar data for? So, well, if you refer back to the podcast that we did uh, not so long ago with 3V Geomatics and, uh-huh. and Parwon, that would that's a prime example of using it for um, interferometric remote sensing, so being able to understand kind of really minute scales, um, movements in the Earth's surface. That's why to monitor tailings, dams, aquifers, you know, infrastructure, you know, above tunnelling projects, etc. So how can something like INSAR uh, be used by financial institutions to safeguard their assets like mines and wind farms and oil rigs? I think it's a really good question because, as Sam just mentioned, being able to see those small movements in the Earth's surface can be the difference between having something pretty catastrophic take place, which is something that's not, and you know, it could be something that's not visible to the naked eye. It could be a tremor in the Earth's surface that it doesn't really pick up as a major seismic activity, but you might have a massive wind turbine sitting on top of um, an area which has just had like, you know, an Earth tremor beneath it. Um, While that might not be significant to people measuring that seismic activity, that is quite significant to you because you want to go and see if that turbine's been damaged in any way. For example, they're very expensive pieces of equipment. You know, in Europe, for example, you, you know, most of Europe is covered by wind turbines, for example, there's a lot of wind farms. And there's been accidents before where they've, um, you know, people have been hurt going out and servicing these wind turbines. So if you can see that there's been some sort of activity, INSAR's great for detecting that. Sam can tell us about how that works. But uh, we used an example on the 3VG podcast as well of... Um, going to a mine site, for example, um, and being able to run a, re- a very quick report, which 3VG can do, which will show you where you have seen those displacements in the Earth's surface, and then they'll go out to that place on the site with the, the key decision makers from that mining company, and then they'll say, oh, okay, yeah, wow, there is damage here, and we had no idea of it. 
So it's about being able to pinpoint areas of, of high risk to your assets. If you're talking about something like a tailing storage facility, there has been a huge amount of um, environmental impact from failures in the dam, that the tailings dam's um, walls. Something that is really cool about INSAR is that if those shifts in the, the structure of the tailings storage facility is detected, that could be the difference between um, those tailings and tailings being something that's quite toxic um, materials coming out into a habitat where they shouldn't be. They are stored there for a reason because they're not good for the environment. If they fail, that's a really big deal and has sometimes had catastrophic circumstances um, attached to it. So yeah, INSAR being used in the spatial finance context is, I think, very important. In terms of the actual technology and how it works, I'm totally not equipped to answer that question. But in terms of the use cases from an investment and a financial perspective, I, what's something I see as being the huge benefit. But Sam, can you explain a little bit more, more I guess, about the applications of it? Yeah, absolutely. So well, let's just stay with tailing stamps for a moment. Failures of tailing stamps are really low likelihood, but high consequence. Yeah, massive risks. consequence. Yeah. Um, and those consequences are, are, are wide ranging. You know, there is the potential for the uh, massive environmental damage, the loss of life, you know, as we saw in those tragedies in Brazil a few years ago. But many tailings dams actually fail um, around the world each year, which we don't hear about because because people don't die and because there is an environmental damage. But there's damage to those operations and those sites have to shut down for a period of time. They have to spend a whole heap of money. Um, so INSAR is being used by um, these companies to protect their investment and protect the um, interests of their investors as well. So in that way, INSAR is a, a mechanism for companies um, and, and their shareholders to, um, I suppose, protect against low likelihood um, but really high consequence risks. Talking about the supply chain again and, and making sure that you keep things moving, mining again is another great example of ter- in terms of um, transportation and, and those um, transport corridors. So, for example, if you're, you know, mining company we've got a lot of those in Australia but you've got your mine sites which are like sort of inland most of the time you've got very you know advanced railway systems we don't really hear much about them because they're all private but again if you can use um, INSAR to um, monitor that there might have been a shift in, in movement of the, the surface of the earth near one of your railways and you don't want to see one of your you don't want trains, to see one of your trains derailed. Trains derailed, right? like with all this iron ore in it, right? That's millions of dollars. Most of the time, you know, when they're moving this out to port to go overseas, you don't want to have any derailment of your trains because that's going to cause an issue. It's going to have a knock-on effect, basically, like Sam was saying before. You can't deliver that, that iron ore, for example, to the port. It doesn't get delivered in time. But there's a customer on the other end of that. Yeah, and there's also the amount of um, production which backs up. Behind. Yeah, behind it. If you've got a derailed train, you've got a damaged railway line, then there's now a hold up with all of the um, all of the minerals that have been mined to get back out to port behind that now are blocked and um, there's a blockage in your supply chain basically. But if you can see that there might be an issue with using something like INSAR, then you can send somebody out there before that train gets there, before that happens, before you have a problem on your hands basically. You know, if you're trying to make money, you want to keep making money, keep your investors happy, then yeah, INSAR is something you should consider keeping in your toolkit as a preventative measure. So we've kind of touched on it briefly uh, a little bit earlier, but we we're talking about how cloud technology has helped advance or bring awareness to financial institutions and using earth observation technology. How do you think uh, something like machine learning can be used in remotely monitoring assets? Um, so machine learning's used a lot, as, as we know. 
um, but but right through kind of analytical um, pathways. Probably one of the best examples of an application in finance of satellite imagery and remote sensing is the kind of the services offered offered by a company called Orbital Insight. So they, a number of years ago, developed a product which basically used high-frequency, high-resolution um, commercial satellite imagery to count cars in car parks of major shopping centres across the United States. And what they found was was the number of cars in a car park at any particular time was a, a leading indicator of kind of economic activity um, and, and retail sales figures. And with that information, that allowed kind of Orbital Insights customers to predict where the market's going to head, you know, where, um, you know, Walmart's share price is going to head ahead of the market and, and of course, to profit from that. So um, that's that's one of the examples. But machine learning is becoming so accessible these days and, and performing so well that um, we're finding it creep into most analyses. It's a pretty common and easy tool to pick up. I guess that would also be because there's so much imagery now available, you need something or you can actually do all this predictive analysis, it's quite cool. Yeah. Do you think this spatial finance is something we will see continue to gain popularity on a global scale? Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll, well, it is growing um, and it will continue growing, but I'm not so sure how much of it we'll see. So I kind of mentioned before that there's a, when you get, when you have a piece of intelligence which gets you in front of the market, you're not telling people about it. Yeah. Um, and, and generally you're fine with conversations with, you know, people in finance and particularly traders who um, want to develop a solution around this or want to work with somebody to develop a solution, it is all wrapped up in NDAs. Nobody talks about it. Um, it's a sort of solution you develop to sell to one client and people are happy with that and nobody talks about it. So they, it's definitely happening a lot. It will continue to grow um, just based on you know, continued advancement in the analytical techniques um, and also awareness within companies. But in general, I don't think we'll hear that much about it. So what Sam's saying is basically every single trader that's got... <laughs> Earth observations as a tool in their their toolkit right now is going to hate us for this podcast because we're basically yeah. telling everyone all of their secrets. I think that we'll see a gaining in popularity for for spatial finance for sure. And I mean, we talked about all the business benefits and being able to profit from using spatial finance and being able to do more from your desktop and understand supply chains and being able to monitor the assets of your competitors and what they're doing, for example. So that's like hugely advantageous. And I do agree with Sam. I do, I do think that's something, a use case of in spatial finance. So we're not going to hear people saying out loud because, you know, they want to have that competitive advantage. I do think we will see it gaining popularity and be spoken about in terms of the environmental and sustainable benefits that it can have for businesses. That supply chain piece that we talked about earlier, for example, and being able to um, use Earth observations to basically influence who you do business with based on how they do business. I do think we'll be hearing more about that because I do think that's something worth talking about. Um, And I do think that a lot of these large investors care. Like we said before, I think they really do want to do the right thing. I think that for um, superannuation funds or pension funds, I think what we're seeing is that People who hold policies with those pension and super funds care about where they're spending their money and they have to be quite upfront and open about where they invest their money. I I have had a handful of conversations with people who um, have even changed their super fund recently because of the way that that super fund invests and who they invest in. So I think that that's something that we're going to be hearing about is that um, using Earth observations to make better sustainable and ethical decisions for these funds is going to be massive. And I think they know that it has to be because it's going to influence how people perceive 
them, the marketplace, and maybe even, yeah, who that, if it's a pension fund, for example, how people interact with them and if they hold a policy with them or not. Um, something else I would love to see, which I haven't really heard much about, is, um, and I know Sam and I were talking about this yesterday, was um, I think this is something to acknowledge is that sustainable investment isn't always green. I think that with, I'm not going to name what's been going on in the news, I figure it all out on your own, but you could be using satellite imagery and earth observations to really understand the landscapes of where you invest. I would encourage any investors that might be listening um, or portfolio managers for that matter who are listening to this podcast to think about displacement of Indigenous groups and the way that Indigenous people are impacted by your investment decisions. I think earth observations is a really great way of understanding these landscapes. You can you can see townships, for example, that might be very rural that you didn't know were there. You could be looking at that landscape, for example, and asking the right sorts of questions about who lives here, what is the history of this place, how can I work with these communities to understand how my investment might impact them. Obviously, Earth Observations is not going to tell you where a sacred Indigenous site might be, but it definitely could allow you to open up that conversation and work with groups on the ground in those places. And I'm not talking just about Australia, I'm talking about Canada, I'm talking about New Zealand, I'm talking about any place where you be investing your money in something that could disrupt a natural landscape that might impact those groups to start having those conversations and really doing your research about the fact that sustainable and responsible investment isn't just about being environmentally conscious, it's about also being conscious of history and at an intrinsic level sacred sites for Indigenous groups. So that would be the other point I'd make. I guess that public pressure and that top-down and bottom-up pressure placed on businesses to actually think about uh, where they're doing work and the repercussions of the landscape and environment around them and people around them in the case of Indigenous communities. What resources and tips would you recommend to anyone who might want to know more about spatial finance? It's a tricky one um, because, like I said, not a great deal of people are talking about it. There is a heap of work happening in this space, though. So, yeah, companies themselves managing um, their own supply chain, as we mentioned. A lot of activist groups and NGOs as well also using spatial data to to bring to light some of the things that are happening around the world, and, and that is... Um, when presented to, um, you know, investors and, and owners of companies is, is really helping to shape their response. So that's that's one place. And, of course, you can talk to us. We do have some experience in this space. So, yeah, no, you can definitely talk to us. About shameless this. plug. <laughs> yeah, shameless. shameless plug. If you're looking, um, if you want to know more about the priorities of some of these large investors um, when, it comes to build, when it comes to sustainable and responsible investment, um, do check out the OMFIF website. So it's omfif.org. Um, they do really, really great um, research into this every year. Um, and they, I noticed this year, have released like individual chapters of the Global Public Investor Report. And they do have one there that's available on sustainable investment that they've written in conjunction with Bank of New York Mellon. Um, so if you want to know more about what the priorities are um, and the, I guess the, the key factors in influencing sustainable investment decisions of these large investors go and have a read of that because it is very interesting yeah i'll put all of those in the show notes i think there's a couple others that's been referenced like the um worldwide fund for nature report with investec um there's kiko namura's uh article as well that we spoke about planet 3bg as some technologies listed today um so i will throw them all in the show notes yeah i think and like just going back to what sam said 
not being a shameless plug, but just general knowledge, if you feel like you don't understand how the technology works or how you can make it work for you in your organisation and you just want to have a chat about what's possible, then do do actually reach out to NGIS and EO Data Science because the team is really friendly and very enthusiastic and um, yeah, maybe just help break down some of the barriers of understanding the technology and how it works would be beneficial, then yeah, talk to them. Thank you both so much for joining this podcast. I've really enjoyed it and learned a lot about spatial finance. It's been like a crash course this week leading into the podcast. But yeah, I've learned a lot. So thank you both for your time. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Sarah. If you enjoyed the episode and you want to hear more, we do have a couple episodes that have been released for season two and a lot of episodes sitting in season one still that you can find on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher and more recently Google Podcast. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.